as soon as we get maps in our face, um, the tendency with people who are planners or, or are designers or whatever they want to call is to populate the map with things to do. And uh, my caution is to, to do the absolute bare minimum. Um, and, you know, all of that will mean that your money, which you've worked really hard to, to get to this point to get, um, and the energy that you're, gonna, that you're going to have with all the people here, uh, will be minimised and well-directed. And you'll just, yeah, so no, no coming in here and saying, all right, well, we're going to do this, that and the other all at once. I just don't, I just think that's a fundamentally flawed um, pathway. Greetings, g'day, and welcome back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. This is your host, Dan Palmer, and this is episode 17. Can you feel the momentum? I'm feeling it. This particular episode popped out of the blue, fell onto my lap, as it were. Uh, The situation was that on Monday, um, March 25th, 2019, so very recently, uh, I'm acting as process facilitator uh, on a fairly exciting chunky project uh, involving a big chunk of land um, here in Victoria, Australia. Um, And because it involves a commercial farm aspect, I called in uh, a colleague of mine, Darren J. Doherty, who has a huge amount to offer on on that front. And we recorded it for just just as a, so so the clients and the rest of us could, could refer back to stuff that Darren shared throughout the day. Some of it was just so good. It was gold. You know, it was music, to, soothing music to my ears. And I thought, well, I've, I've got to, I've got to pull some of this together in, into a, into an episode for the podcast. So I've done exactly that. So there's a bunch of snippets. Um, and keep in mind, what you get to be here is like a, a fly on the wall during Darren consulting on a um, on a farm project. And um, I've obviously chopped bits and pieces out. What happens is there's a move from some general commentary around Darren's switch away from master planning, hence music to my ears, uh, and then there's some stuff around keyline geometry and how that relates to design patterns being there in the landscape. We just got to find them and follow them. We don't have to be too clever and impositional about it. Uh, then he moves into some more specific farm-related uh, coverage. There's some great stuff around grasses and carbon uh, succession uh, whatnot, electric fencing and other things. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of jump in at each segue and let you know what's coming up next. Um, but the general flow is from bigger picture design considerations into more farm specific stuff. So keep that in mind. Oh yes, I did want to mention that there's a little bit of coarse language here and there. So just a friendly warning about that. Any particularly sensitive uh, listeners may choose to pass on, on this episode. Otherwise... Enjoy, and I will catch you again at the end. Yeah, so so we we've got to a point. And it's probably about the last probably seven or eight years. I've just shifted away from master planning altogether. The reason for that, and it should have been obvious more uh, earlier, is because landscapes are very complex, and the bigger the landscape, the more complexity there is, and there's a lot to take in. And it doesn't, I, I don't believe any, I don't know of any human who's capable of taking on all of that complexity and doing it well. 
um, without making some, as, as some people would call, tight one errors along the way. So, and it's also, I think it's a, it's a position of hubris to go in to, with that sort of mindset too quickly. And the other point is, is it costs a lot. There's not, there's very, even high net worths that I, and I've worked with a lot of, or we've worked with a lot of them over the time. They don't just go black. It's still a progressive approach to actually, you've got a 500 acre block and you've got a high net worth billionaire, whatever, and they come in with their resources and they want to, you know, they want to um, exert their domain, which they do because they're, you know, they're alpha personalities usually. Um, so they apply that to the landscape. They still can't do it. And that's a billionaire, right? So we get medium net worths or whatever who want to do it. We still say the same, you know, just hang back, right? Because one of the things that we've seen repeatedly is that people who buy land usually get very excited. It's like a new, it's like a, you get this honeymoon period. Yeah, and it's, and it's an infatuation. And when we see, for example, people who, you know, they've saved up all their life, always wanted a farm, sold the house in town, bought their 100 acres, they've got half a mil up their sleeve, you know, they're going to spend, you know, spend half a mil on the house and all of its development, and then they've got another half a mil in their sort of nest egg left over, and they go out and blow 150 grand on shit, just like that, because they go down to elders and they go down to Landmark and they, they get a consultant or whatever, and they just tell them to buy shit. And they go to the Seymour field days and they come home with a slasher and uh, this machine and that machine and this tractor and da, da 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 They go to elders and they say, oh, you've got to put concrete posts in every six metres and ton of wire and blah, 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 blah. And then, you, you know, spending $15 a metre on fencing and they buy concrete troughs and they, you know, they just buy shit and you drive up the driveway and you go, you've just blown half of what you had. And now you're going to, and now you've got, and you've set it up in a way that's just stupid. And that's the sort of thing that we, you know, reflect on. I haven't done that personally, but I've seen, I've gone to a lot of properties where I've drove, driven in and I'll go, oh, you know, and it's frustrating because you know then that the, that the period, that period of, um, that first period when you've got it has now at the, the, the capital when a, different forms of capital have been sort of blown in a way. And so then you've got to tell them the hard way what they've just done. And that's deflating for a lot of people because they just go, oh, really? You know, it's like, oh, look, I'm sorry. And we'll work around it. It's, you know, you know, when you do something that you shouldn't have done and you look at it and go, oh, fuck. And it's one of those things that you do that you just can't undo. It's really deflating. And that can be a function of, of a master planning process because you just jumped in and gone bump, 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 and away you go. So what we say to people on pl- places like this, that there are, there's a few things that you can do that work with the landscape, which have, which are of a low enough investment and of a temporary enough nature that if you, if you don't get it right now, you can change it. And that the worst possible outcome is that you'll just get better soil, right? You'll have better, you'll have better, a better landscape condition than what you did before. And so we often recommend to people that they um, just set up a basic water system and a basic um, a fencing system for, say, livestock, like I've suggested here. 
um, because your soils are in a condition right now that you know they're at the base, and um, so we and the landscape function of the place is not happening as well as it could. So when we turn the landscape, you know, we go if we go from zero and we go to fifty, and we do that in a year or two in terms of landscape function, that's the time where we can really see what the land actually how it performs, right? Because right now, it's it's performing. It you know, it's like when you, you you like cars. It's like you get in a car that you've never driven before and it's running like shit, right? And you think, gee, this is a shit car, right? This is a really shit car. What it needs is a tune up. Now you can and, and you know, it's like what are the shocks like? The shocks are a bit shit. You go through a corner and go, oh shit, I need to change the shocks. And you go, wow, this car handles beautifully. It's very much like that. So, so you can make, you'd make all of these decisions based on what that car's like at that point, not when it's actually at this point. And that, when it gets to there, you're looking at a whole different range of parameters. Uh, just so you know, at this point, um, one of the clients arrived who hadn't been there for the first few hours of the day. So Darren's about to recap some of the main points he just made. What we were just talking about now is um, this key moment of infatuation that occurs after one buys a property and and that there's typical ways that one has a pathway after doing that and and also um, the concerns that I have about master planning um, I've been a farm planner since 1993 so for a fair bit of time and I've done a lot of master plans up until about 2000 and Oh, probably about 2010, 11. And then I made a p- pretty big decision not to go down that pathway anymore. And what, I'm, what I mean by a master plan is when you look at the whole landscape and you decide, you know, in one session to design where all the trees are going to go, where all of the fences are going to go, where all the water's going to go, where all the dams are going to go. You design the whole thing and then you hand that over to you and you then you have a process by which you're going to develop what is what is put on that plan come hell or high water right and and i'll and i'll be we together will own that and we'll advocate on each other's behalf the the how important this plan is right that's actually to me in the feedback that i've seen over years a flawed process because you just cannot foretell all of the things that are going to go wrong so we've ta- so these days, uh, what we do is take a much more progressive approach, um, and we devote um, a lot more of the energy that we have in uh, in this new relationship with a new piece of land. We develop, we put that energy into having a, a low intensity management regime that allows us to. Uh, whilst managing the landscape to go forward so it gets better from what it is now, it gives us a good period to observe that landscape and then make decisions about what might, what the landscape will look like and what it will actually do. All right? So that's number one. Number two is that we also use that time, especially if you're looking at developing an enterprise, to get all of that complexity because, as you know, having been in business, Business planning is obviously important, 
And um, and if you, I, I have again because I'm asked about on this program, I haven't heard entirely what your whole context is that you've developed, what your objectives are. But if you do have business objectives for this place or enterprise objectives, well then they are going to re- that's that's going to actually require some planning in itself. And and as and it's and it's clear to me, or it has become clear to me after working with you know literally thousands of land uh, land managers that. The biggest efficiency in any um, uh, rural pursuit, agricultural pursuit, is the people, not the landscape. And it's just, and it's it's really the same in any business, I think. You know, so but particularly in you know most most um, enterprises don't have a landscape that they're working with. Um, they have people and tools. This has got people, tools, and a landscape. So um, that adds a whole layer of complexity, and then that involves the weather and other markets and all of these different conditions. So I just wanted to put that out there. That Now, the other thing that that does, if you choose, I mean, it's up to you whether you choose to take an approach like that or not. You might go, yeah, I want, I want to have a master plan and yep, that's your that's you know, your, your money, Ralph, as they say. Um, if you want to go down that pathway, well, welcome, welcome to it and there you go. But otherwise... I would suggest that if you take up that that sort of um, pathway, then um, then we'll just get this landscape um, fundamentally set up, so that um, so that you can um, over the next year um, increase the landscape function and um, and get it going, and at the same time, um, your core management crew who are working the place. Will be the will be the key people who will be taking in how that land actually works over that period by doing that management. In other words, it's a feedback exercise, right? Um, there's an old you might have heard of an old bloke called uh, Masanobu Fukuoka who wrote a book in it was 1994 or 88 oh, 88 that's right called the One Straw Revolution. He was a famous Japanese microbiologist turned farmer, and um, he had a he had a term where it's important to apply protracted observation, not thoughtless direct action, more or less. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people do in landscape. They come into a landscape, they're keen, they've got funds, and they apply their domain to that landscape instantly and come hell or high water. And sometimes that's got unfortunate outcomes. Usually does. Because again, landscapes are way too complicated or ecosystems are very, very complex. And so when you start making them complex and start putting on multiple layers, which a lot of people do, so they'll come in and go, all right, I want an orchard here, I want forestry here, I want cows here, I want a market garden here. You appoint different people to each of those different tasks and you hope that it's you sort of throw the balls up in the air and hope that you're going to have a nice meeting of the way between the personalities involved and the actual operational objective that we've seen um, puts a lot of complexity into it and you might luck it out and you know and, but you may not so I'll just I'll, I'll just put that caution into the puzzle um, yeah, so that's that's where we, that's what we're talking about just before you arrived, and I, I, I suppose as soon as we get maps in our face, um, the tendency with people who are planners or do, or are designers or whatever they want to call is to populate the map, 
with things to do. And uh, my caution is to, to do the absolute bare minimum. Um, and, you know, all of that will mean that your money, which you've worked really hard to, to get to this point to get, um, and the energy that you're, gonna, that you're going to have with all the people here, uh, will be minimised and well-directed. And you'll just, yeah, so no, no coming in here and saying, all right, well, we're going to do this, that and the other all at once. I just don't, I just think that's a fundamentally flawed um, pathway. All right, so we can all leave now. <laughs> all right, so what, what we'd cut to now is Darren is looking at a map and starts to tease out some of the um, key line land units. Um, he's drawing with whiteboard markers on a laminated large uh, plan, a contour uh, aerial plan. And I'll put a photo of it later in his sketching on the show notes so you can hope maybe you can draw some correlation between what you're hearing and what you're seeing. But either way, it's even if you can't see anything, I think there's still still clear enough what's going on and hopefully of use. One of the things I spoke about when we got here this morning was uh, delineating uh, the landforms and in part of because I haven't got this all in total, it's a bit awkward. So I spoke about, you know, we came up this, oh, thank you. We came up this driveway and, um, and I could see that it had a particular shape. Now, this is something to pay attention to. If you look at this map, so I don't know who understands contour maps at all here, but the principle is here that each one of these lines represents a change in vertical um, elevation on a horizontal plane. And so when the contours are further apart, that's where the landscape is, is not as steep. And obviously, this, the, now, the, so the, the places that are least steep are this creek system down through here, but also the ridges. And so when you actually look at the contour map here, where we've got our roads, they're actually on landscapes which are steeper than the actual centre line of the ridge, which is right along here. So... If you will look, so from a map perspective, if we're looking at a landscape that's not been developed already, um, then that would be the, the position of the road that I would build on there. That would also then be, potentially, especially if, the, you know, just again, imagine there's no infrastructure, that this would be the place where I'd put a fence on either side, which as I mentioned before, because of the fencing technologies that we've got, I can, I, can, I can follow, yes, um, I can follow a shape that's quite organic as the land is quite organic in shape, whereas the straight line Western European who still has a epigenetic memory which is built into their psychology that's all built around straight lines. Because if you, if you... As a farmer, farmers have always built straight line fences because they've either been built out of rocks and you don't go making the, the fence any longer than it can be if, if you're building fences out of rocks um, or, it's, or they've been built, built out of wood that you've gone and harvested trees. In a pre-wire period, they're the two main fencing periods. Uh, so it wasn't until 1875 that barbed wire and common 
plane wire became available to fences and that was when and then even then they still had to harvest trees put them in because they had set stocking and so the animals were wild and put pressure on fences and all of the rest of it and it wasn't until a famous new new zealander bill gallagher came along and a, a um, his neighbor's horse come in 1938 came rubbing <laughs> its ass on his brand new plymouth that he'd bought that he is a on his little 90 acres went, I'm going to go into the shed and I'm going to take the magneto out of my old Harley Davidson and I'm going to um, turn that, connect that to the, to the power supply and electrify an area around my Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first um, livestock fence. Electric fences have been around before for, for mainly to keep humans out of things. This was the first electric fences we know it, and the Gallagher family still run the Gallagher Fencing Company in in Hamilton in New Zealand. So, so that's how. <laughs> so it wasn't until we got all of that that we had all of the flexibility to be. And it's very challenging. I know today when I work with producers to do anything except in a straight line. It's the as we talked about. It's it's so if I work with someone who's never been on a farm before, and I work with someone who's on a farm, I've got to I've got to battle all the time with the paradigms of practice that I've that that, that person's culturally inculcated with, and it's a it's it's a harder job. So. Then we look at the other thing that we do as far as this is concerned is we'll look at, it's not super obvious with these maps and I'm sorry that it hasn't, we haven't got it all in totality is look, so that would look at that as a main ridge. And then what looks like we've probably got another, what, what we call a prime, yeah, it's more like there, is it? Yeah, I think it's here. More of a primary ridge here. Uh, and I'd have to see this in the context of the hole because I don't have the hole. What have we got to there? Yeah, that's not too bad. And there's that there's that ridge that continues up and along here. And we did see it sneak out over the fence because remember we were up walking up here and I said, I think it's over yeah. there somewhere, yeah. um, which is about where I made that point. And then it comes up and that will continue and there'll be a crest somewhere up here and then it'll fall down the other side. And then what we've got off that is we've got not much of one but there's a bit of a what we call a primary ridge running down through, probably running down through there, and there's probably another one over here. There's not much. This is really smooth, rounded country. It's lovely. Um, and then what we've got, I'll use the orange for that, is then we have these drainage lines, which are running here, or flow lines as they're called. Now you can see, you can see that um, might come up a bit further up into there. So what you can see is that, see how the shape of the lines goes from being convex to concave? Yeah. And where it's concave, that suggests that it's a valley form, not a ridge form. Creating that delineation, we then create from that um, the, which I can kind of put in, I think, I can bang that in through, oops, wrong one, one. I can sort of come in, where am I down through there? So we do that. Because then that creates the primary um, breakdown of the landscape um, into its primary catchments. So each of these in, the, in key line geography. So key line, if you've heard that term before. So key line was. 
Yeah, oh, that's all right. Some, someone had to tell somebody. I mean, I only learned about it because my grandfather told me about it, right? So some, anyway, key lime was developed by a guy called P.A. Yeomans back in the 40s and, and early 50s. P.A., Percival Alfred. But he was, no, no, he was always called, yeah, Percy Yeomans, or he was most commonly known. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he preferred to be called PA. Yeah. Anyway, well, he was a mining engineer and geologist who made a lot of money during the Second World War when he was early forties, and he be basically he was a self-made man, and he made a statement in his last interview with, um, that whilst all of his friends were playing golf and he grew up in, or he bought, he lived in Vaucluse in Sydney. And so he was, you know, of that class, nouveau riche, you might say. And um, he'd grown up on a farm, you know, very poor. And, um, yeah, so self-made. And then all of his mates were buying yachts and, you know, going on trips and playing golf and, you know, living a bit of an idle life off their riches. And he thought he'd buy a farm instead. So he was one of the first generations of, in that part of the world, pit street farmers. But what he did, as opposed to every other pit street farmer who just basically went and um, used it to help with their income tax, um, which he did as well, that was, a, that was another motivation for him, um, was that he um, also decided to put his mining hat um, particularly around water control towards the management of, of his landscape. And so when he, so he bought these two properties and he set them up and at one stage he had the biggest dams of, of any private landholder in Australia. And, but he completely drought-proofed those landscapes in a very drought-prone part of Australia inland from Sydney. So he built one property, he built 580 megalitres of water on a 760-acre property and it was all, in, um, all off rain storage and then irrigated about a third of that property off the rain that was harvested from it. No harvesting out of the creeks or anything like that. And all under gravity. Yeah. So it was a very... So, and then he developed all of these um, soil improvement strategies and a whole methodology um, on which the Regrarians platform that, that I've developed is adapted from. So he's a, he's a very big figure in all of this stuff. Um, and, that, and his uh, influence has gone into permaculture and all of those other uh, methodologies around land management. Now, first thing that you do as a key line designer is do what we've just done, is you try and, and I try and do this obviously with more of a complete map, but we'll just make and do, is you break the landscape up into its ridges and then you break it up into um, its primary valleys. Yep, exactly, right? And so what we've got here, if you look at here, that's there and there is two knuckles, right? And here and here are the two fingers and the space in between is the valley, right? And that's what we call, a in key line parlance, that's what we call a primary land unit. Right? And that's the first catchment of a landscape because that's coming down and it's meeting. So this, see what you've got to this point, you've got raindrop, rill, runnel, primary valley, uh, creek or some other um, water, uh, water, form, uh, water flow form so, or water flow order. And so 
that there is is what is the first catchment of the landscape and the, all landscapes around the world are made up of this doesn't matter where you go so it's a very fundamental um, way of diagnosing the shape um, of a landscape by just looking at the skeleton and then from that you can then look at that as its own unit and in doing so you can then say well if I had a blank palette where would I put my fences where would you put your fences you'd probably if you were going to look at your subdivision you'd probably put your fences along there where would you put all your roads you pull or put them all aside. Where would you put your where would you put your water pipes to distribute water on there? All in the same light. So you get this common. So that's why it's important from a keyline perspective. You you put the um, you put this very small amount of work in to start with, and the, basically the landscape tells you where to put stuff, which is very liberating because <laughs> right? it's not you trying to you know people exert domain in a whole range of different ways and usually not to anybody's benefit. Um, whereas if you just, you know, take a chill pill and let the, and just, you know, understand the land through this very, very simple framework, well then the land's made the decision for you. All you need to do is follow the pattern right? and away you go. So I don't have so much discomfort with that kind of master planning as it will because it's really it's really fundamental and really the only variations on it say from the perspective of roads is slope because when we go down these slopes we've got to test what that is but that might be too steep to put a road down it may not be too steep if we run a four-wheeler down it though Right? It's certainly a lot less steep than it is going in these little valleys and stuff, which a lot of, and that's the other thing that we've got to think about from a safety point of view, is you've got to set the landscape up so it's by default safe. Because people do use four-wheel motorbikes and they're one of the biggest killers, if not the biggest killer in rural landscapes right now. So, um, so we need to create the default pathways which are going to, um, make, it make it make it harder to die, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, um, and that's so that's some of the stuff that will that that I would put forward, right? Now, look at the patterns of that, and look at the way the patterns of the way the place is set up, though, right? And that's what we've got to consider. That sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater principle. Here, you've got a line here which is not that far off that. The contours are not that much different to that. It's already got a fence. It's already got a windbreak. So we're we gonna just gonna swing around there just to prove a point. I don't think so, right? So we'd probably keep that where you know you'd keep that existing element where it was. Similar with here, I'm not gonna go and cut down all these trees and make a meandering path in there just to prove a, a key line point. I'm gonna stick, you know, it's eighty percent right, mm -hmm. and that's good enough in my book, right? Because you go pushing the twenties, as we know, it's the eighty twenty rule. Well, then that's where that's where the costs start to come in, right? So we'll be practical. So, you know, when you look at landscapes and maps, you can tell a lot about it um, just in terms of how it's broken down, how it's, you know, this, these are quaternary volcanics, which means that they've been, you know, they're, they're of the quaternary epoch in geology. So they're only maximum <laughs> about five, 10 million years old. That's, that's juvenile. Um, that's baby terms in geological terms. 
So these are, these are basaltic soils, which mean that they've got a very high mineral content. That's why they're red. Um, and so because as they oxidise, they throw off all of the colours of oxides. So it's a, it's a very good land. It's, it's good land, right? And good land doesn't erode as much as bad land does, right? So if this was, if this was a sedimentary landscape that was five, like come up to Bendigo or something like that, where it's, where it's 550 million year old marine-based sediments that have had no, no replenishment. I mean, there were barely organisms 550 million years ago. So, you know, you've got really poor salt-filled soils when water interacts with that, it erodes, right? When water interacts with this, it's stable. And this is, it's a peninsula and it's elevated and it has been for a long time and it's surrounded by water, so it's surrounded by humidity. So that's maintained it even over that period. So it's, a, so it's big forms, in other words. So we're going to come over here and I reckon we'd probably get out over here and that's where the next ridge will be, probably out through there. But we don't, we don't have that map, but I'll, we'll, we'll play with that later. All right, at this point, someone asked a question about the topic of introducing carbon to the soil has come up and someone asked a question about how we go about that. So Darren now gets into some of the, um, the way that works in combination with, with grasses and animals and sunlight, etc. Well, the most efficient thing is through this. I think I've got a green one here. It's called this thing. It's called a leaf. And this is called a root. No, no, not a lot. <laughs> no, no, no. Good point. Oh, I could elaborate, but I won't. No, by having a by having leaves, which uh, of grasses, grasses don't have. Um, if you look at the leaves of grasses and most pasture plants, they don't like uh, most other plants, vascular plants. Um, they have a dendritic um, vascular system, like we do. Um, grasses don't. They have um, a highway so they have this real they have the equivalent of the sort of Los Angeles highway and they have grasses have only evolved in the last 65 70 million years so they're they're sort of like plant version two I, I would call them right so version one developed a, um, a a vascular system that looks like this like our like our creeks and our rivers and that's actually a very inefficient way of moving fluids um, there's lots of bottlenecks and turb uh, turbulence and all of the rest to contend with. There's certain reasons why that. And then you've got this version, which these the individual uh, um, um, uh, chlorophyll cells in here are much more efficient at photosynthesis as well. So, which is why grasses and grasses and grassland plants are much more able to res to respond and change to ecological changes than, say, trees are or shrubs are. So when you, when you get an early success, like if I go and wipe a landscape of all its vegetation, the trees aren't the first thing that come back. And if I go and wipe it again and graze it again or do it again, it's always going to be the pasture and weed species, the soft plants, which come back first. And they've developed um, particular um, physiological means to be able to manage that. The other thing, that, so a perennial grass, when it produces, um, when, it, when it, like all, all plants do this, when they photosynthesize, they produce um, sugar as a byproduct. In a perennial plant, 
Some of that goes into roots, which store starch, which I, I think we talked about this once before. Um, it's sort of like a like they're producing a bank account. They're saving. They're putting something away for later. Trees do that by storing it in their in their structure. So a tree is about fifty percent carbon in storage, and some of that's in a starch, and some of that's in a cellulose. And then a tree puts most of its um, most of its photosynthetic byproducts um, into into um, producing those roots with a little bit of exudate, but mostly into its stature and starch. Grasses put most of their photosynthetic output into exudates, which are liquid, they're polysaccharides, and they, they put that energy out. And what that energy does, it basically transfers the energy of the sun and the water and the air into creating these sugars, which then feed huge colonies of primarily um, arbuscular mycorrhizae, right, which are fungi. And they have exter- extensive networks that go throughout the soil, and they, um, they go out and hunt for minerals, particularly phosphorus and uh, potassium and other minerals. <coughs> they hunt for that, and then there's a symbiotic relationship where, those, where that where that sugar is exchanged for minerals. And then that plant uptakes minerals and that's how you have all of that go on. Now these mycorrhizal fungi, which produce their network, extensive network throughout the soil in the aerobic part of the soil because they're aerobes and these just happen to be one one species is called uh, uh, a truffle. So they're a mycorrhizal fungi um, whose host is a range of different Mediterranean and European trees and shrubs, hazels, um, different oaks and whatnot. That's their fruiting body. The fruiting body is only a really small part of their total biomass. They all produce, each of these hairs is called, well, these hyphae, they're called, they're called hyphae, and they're covered by an anti- bacterial sheath which is called glomalin and glomalin well when you when you hear the word glomalin what does it make you think of what's its uh, on and apoic sort of feeling vibe <laughs> jelly yeah right exactly snot right glob right <laughs> well that's the that's because it is a gel and it's a glycoprotein so it, and it's antibacterial and the purpose of the antibacterial thing, and it's also <laughs> osmotic, so water-soluble nutrients which are harvested by these hyphae go through that glomalin, and what that does is it stops the bacteria that are in the soil eating the hyphae, which is really edible, right? Now, Bill Mollison said years ago that um, really good principle of permaculture, which didn't make it to the top 12, was that everything gardens, and what that principle to me means that everything is making its own habitat, right? And that why the purpose of glomalin from a um, from the from the from the fungi's perspective is that its ultimate purpose, apart from protecting itself, is when that when that is finished harvesting there, the glomalin stays behind and it stays there for about fifty years. And, it's, and then it decomposes and it actually causes soil <laughs> particles to aggregate 
and allow that environment to be aerobic. All right? So... Yeah, so who's running the world here? Right, and which is Paul Stamets' uh, whole thesis that, you know, we're, we're all lemmings at the... At the, behe- at the we're, we're all uh, lemmings um, being managed by the world's fungi, <laughs> which is... Yeah, we won't go there. Anyway, <laughs> so the glomalin keeps keeps keep uh, aggregates because it's a glue and it aggregates individual soil particles together it bonds them with a carbon because it's a glycoprotein the glyco being the carbon part and that creates soil structure and soil structure increases permeability and when you've got this it keeps water in there which keeps other organisms happy which keep the fungi happy and they're the ones who are running the show so everything else above and everything else is all for their benefit, right? So if we, so that's why it's important not to cultivate. And you, you subsidise the fact that you're not doing this by bringing in carbon all the time, right? That's, that's how you subsidise it. But that's just a function of growing annual plants. So we do all of that out there. So I've brought you into the microcosm to bring you out to the macro, so we do this sort of thing, and what we do is we try and utilise that as well as we can so that we get the nutrient cycling from that because some of it's going to go out in cow, walk away. Most of it's actually going to stay here and with uh, as manure and urine. Okay. Now, when we talked about having density with animals... Um, a cow, a mature cow eats about, um, like I said, 3% of its body mass a day. It actually excretes most of that. That's something where they're really efficient. They're really efficient. Like you think of how much we eat per day and how much we manure and urinate. We're actually, we don't, a lot of it goes into our metabolism and all of our structure and whatnot. Whereas with a cow, a cow is really efficient at taking food in, taking it out because of its because of its amazing digestion system, squeezing every bit of light, uh, every bit of mineral out of that grass through its bacteria, through its microbiome, and then most of the solids of that just go out the other end, right? Either in a liquid form or a solid. So you get really high manure production from a cow. So if we might we might get forty. You know, 30 to 40 kilos of manure production per day from a cow. Now, think of that in terms of your, your, your I'm talking about people yesterday, they're, they're like you, they've just bought this property, and the last bloke had bought a $55,000 compost turning machine. It's a beautiful machine and everything, and he's trying to sell it to them. And I said, why would you buy a compost machine when you've got compost machines walking over the place at the moment? And they make better compost than you'll ever make. It's called cow manure. And I said, well, I said, what, what sort of rate of compost do you think you put out? And he said, oh, probably three tonnes a, he- ton a hectare. Well, let's, let's look at that. If I've got 50 cows, same with sheep as well, if I've got 50 cows, then that equals, a, let's say, about 2,000 kilos per day of manure. All right? Now, let's say that those cows are on reasonable grass. That reasonable grass, we might put them on about 2,500 square metres of area for one day. They're also putting out 
about you know between 30 and 40 liters depending on how much they drink and how hot it is 30 or 40 liters of manure, uh, li- um, urine a day anyone knows urine is really high in minerals and it's good stuff it's, it's full of water soluble minerals so you've got um, let's say it's 20 so we've got uh, what's that 50 times times 20 is um, oh please help me what's that five twos are ten so we've got a thousand liters of urine on a 2500 square meter area now you extrapolate that out to a hectare so you times everything by four by four well, not that one yeah so that goes to a hectare which is 10,000 square meters you've got that so that's 8,000 <coughs> kilograms per hectare of manure that's 4,000 litres per hectare of liquid manure, right? And people still go out and spread liquid manure. They go and buy it. (coughs) See where I'm going? Mm. It makes absolutely no sense. So we just harrow that manure? You don't harrow it, no. Let the the rain do it? No, that's where dung beetles are. Dung beetles are nature's harrows, right? Dung beetle will come along... Because here's the thing with dung beetles, well, if you don't worm the, the animals because you've now upset the life cycle of the worm by moving them more frequently than their life cycle is, okay? if you do that, um, then what will happen is you've got a very high density of manure. So at the moment, you've got manure at really low density. Right? The ideal with manure density is about one manure about every three meters or less right because then that means it's really efficient for like if they're that close if they're that close and it's really i mean dung beetles can fly there's not i mean they're beetles but it's much faster for them to to colonize and reproduce and build up their populations when there's proximity closer proximity to with manure <coughs> I, I think there will be. We'll just introduce them. It's not hard. You can buy them. Yeah. Or just go to someone else's property and get them. But you can buy them. Pardon me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the hard thing is you've got to be quick because they make a, they literally make a manure disappear in a day or two. And so you don't get any flies from that manure because it's faster than the flies can cycle and you don't get any worms from it because it's too fast for the worms to cycle. Sure. Yep. How does that work then? Well, generally there's a four-day lag behind them. To let um, larva. Well, it's for that, but generally, when, look, most of them, and you've seen the polyphase videos and stuff. Most of the most of the food that the that the chickens get from foraging in the area is not from the manure pads, because if you've got um, dung beetles, the manure is well and truly gone by then. The other thing is dung beetle, if you've ever played with dung beetles, they're really fun little creatures. If you go up and to a cow pat or, or, um, or sheep manure or whatever, and you go and kick it, they disappear straight away. Because what they do, they roll the manure up into a ball, depending on the size of them, and they're really, really super strong. I think the scarab beetle, which is quite well known as a, in, in the Bible and whatnot, um, it's the strongest insect in the world. 
because what it does is it rolls up a huge big ball of manure, puts its, puts its um, um, uh, egg inside of it, and then that becomes the food source for the, for the, for the, um, when that hatches inside. But what they do is they bury it inside the ground. So they bury all these, they make all these burrows. So if you look, when you scratch away a manure, they disappear because they think you're a bird. Right? They don't like, as soon as they see the sun, they just scamper for whatever way they can get away. So they're pretty well adapted to that. And they burrow holes and they bury their, so again, what tool have we got? What of all the beautiful machines that we've developed, what tool have we got that can put um, uh, manure in balls in perfect little shapes into the ground up to a foot or so deep? <laughs> And can do that economically, right? It's Woofers. it's woofers. <laughs> woofers with a spike. Yeah, sitting there rolling rolling manure all night. Yeah. It's part of the job description. <laughs> Okie doke, that's this episode done. Hope that was uh, helpful, useful, interesting. Quite a diversity of different focuses there. Um, thanks so much to Darren for coming down and spending the day. On the project, added an enormous amount of value to everybody. It's great to have access to colleagues with, um, I don't know, so many runs on the board or just so many decades of, of hard-earned experience and also colleagues that are happy um, or comfortable acknowledging the, you know, what didn't work in the past and the way that they've, they've steered their process uh, dynamics as a result. You can learn more about Darren and his work at regrarians.org. It's got lots going on. There's online courses and a big online discussion place. Uh, you name it, check it out. More uh, on the Making Permaculture Stronger side of things, makingpermaculturestronger.net is the website. Uh, it's, I mean, I'm driving it. It's feeling pretty active right now. More podcasts are coming out. I'm doing a fair bit of writing and, and all the rest and um, enjoying the commentaries and discussions with fellow permaculturists all around the world. Anyway, thanks so much for your time and I will catch you in the next... Oh yes, that's right, I nearly forgot. For some reason, Darren's beautiful, deep, resounding laughter um, it just jumped out at me while I was editing up the podcast. So I don't know why I did it, but I pulled out a whole bunch of instances and then I've, I'm about to share them with you. I've organized them roughly from quietest to loudest. Uh, and then what I think is the clear winner I've repeated a few times uh, at the end. Um, I haven't checked this with Darren, so <laughs> hopefully this is okay and we can remain friends and colleagues. But it's just, I mean, you've got to, you've got to admit, it's just such a beautiful thing. And um, I'm gonna, that's what I'm doing. So uh, enjoy and I'll catch you again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> 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 Ha 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 